This morning's scripture reading is found in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 20. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, good morning. Let's pray as we uh, look into God's word together. Lord, thank you for this chance to be together to worship you and to hear from you now. May your word go forth and not return void. May you accomplish in us what you want to today. And Lord, we admit that we struggle with being content. Teach us, Lord, today that we might be more content. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So how are you doing in this uh, tough economy? How's it affecting you? I wish I knew all your stories, but uh, I know many of your stories, and I know some of you are really struggling. I know many have lost jobs in this body. Many have lost a lot of retirement funds, having to work longer because of that. There's been cutbacks at work. You've lost income. You've, uh, some of you have lost houses, your housing. Some of you have found it to be really hard, and it's affected all of us in various ways. There was a recent article that Fred Schlater gave me from the Wall Street Journal. It's titled, Slump Strains Church Finances as Need Grows. And it talks about it uh, in this article about how many churches have really struggled during this economic downturn. Some have actually been foreclosed on. Most all have had cutbacks of various kinds. Many churches have had to lay off staff, cut back on programs, cut back on ministry. The author writes, churches, synagogues, and mosques have historically fared reasonably well during recessions, even as other institutions struggled. But the magnitude of the current downturn has caught up with places of worship, too. Richard Klopp writes, or said, the economic climate for religious organizations is the worst in at least 30 years. So that's what's happening 
to churches in America. Here at Cole, we've frozen salaries, took no raises at all. We've tightened our budget as well. We've had a lot more need of people asking for help, financial help. But here's what amazes me. In all this tough economic climate, you continue, you, continue to be incredibly generous. We have not had to lay off staff. We're paying all our bills. We're maintaining positions. And you've continued to generously support our field staff, our missionaries, our short-term missions trips, our fellowship fund that we've been able to help many out of. All that's because of your generosity. And I just want to say on behalf of the church, on behalf of the staff, thank you very much and God bless you. May he richly, richly bless you for your generosity. Thank you. Well, today we come to the end of the book of Philippians and Paul is in a similar place. You see, the Philippians had generously given him a gift. Actually, several gifts, but he's thinking of one in particular that he had just received. And he is overwhelmed with gratitude towards them for their generosity. He's locked in a Roman prison. He's destitute because he has no way to get income. And in prison in those days, it was very much unlike our prisons. If you were going to eat or have any needs met, the government didn't pay for it. You had to come up with it. So if people didn't, from outside didn't bring you gifts, you would die in prison. So Paul's in a very tough position. But the Philippians had sent a gift through Epaphroditus to meet, their need, to meet his needs. And they were a very poor church as well. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul describes it this way. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, which include Philippi, and Philippi was the predominant one who gave, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty, okay, they're in affliction and poverty, it overflowed in the wealth of their liberality, their generosity. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging with us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And Paul is thrilled by this church that doesn't have a lot and yet they're doing all they can to be generous. And this points to something that's interesting for us to think about, important for us to think about, and that is our use of money is one of the best indicators of our spiritual health. Our use of money is one of our best indicators of our spiritual health. And the Philippian church was a healthy church. They were very giving. So Paul ends his letter that he's been talking to them about unity and what it means to focus on the gospel and live for the gospel and out of that have a community where they are working together as partners in ministry and serving the Lord together and forbearing the things that bug us about one another because there are many of those. But letting those, those go for the sake of a greater purpose, the gospel. 
He spent a lot of time on that. Now he ends the book by really appreciating their kindness. And he wants them to understand the great value of generosity. Generosity is not just meeting somebody's need. It actually has much broader impact. And that's what he wants to talk about today and what we will see. He helps us all understand how important it is to live a generous life. How it's a blessing to others, but when we're generous, it's actually an incredible blessing to us as well. How can that be? Well, let's look at the passage together and we'll see. Verse 10 begins this way. It says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. That word, you have revived your concern for me. Literally, it's bloomed again. It's talking about a flower that blooms once and now it's blooming again. He says, hey, you're, you're blooming again in your generosity to me. You're concerned about me again and you've shown that practically. And I'm excited about it. I thank you. He is thrilled. He rejoices over their generosity. But he goes on to say, but the reason I rejoice isn't so much what I, about what I received, but it's what... It did for you. Notice what he says. He says, verse 11, not that I speak from want. In other words, not that I wouldn't have made it without your gift. Funny way to say thanks, isn't it? It's almost like he's saying, well, I didn't really need it. But, uh, <laughs> but he wants them to understand something very profound about how we deal with life. And it's this whole issue of contentment, which is a struggle for us. This issue of contentment. He says, I didn't need your gift necessarily. My thankfulness is not based on my neediness, though it was a blessing to me, he'll go on to say. But I do want you to understand why I didn't need that. He begins there and he shows them that while their gift blessed, the, blessed him, he could have gotten by without it. But the reason he could get by without it is because of a secret he's learned. The secret, he says, of contentment. The secret of contentment. I'm struck by almost every short-term mission team that goes out. When they come back, one of the predominant things you hear over and over again is how amazed they are when they go to a poverty-stricken area that these people have nothing and yet they have a greater joy than we do. And if you've been on a short-term trip, you've seen that. Why is that? Why is it so hard for us who have so much to be content with our lives, with our situation? Why do we experience so much discontentment? Well, partly it's because of our flesh, right? Our flesh craves more. It always wants more. It's it's craving more and so as long as that is raging war in us it will constantly want more that's part of it but they have the flesh too another reason i think we are so easily discontented is that things are enslaving remember jesus said very clearly he said uh don't you you cannot serve god and mammon money or things You can't serve both 
things, money, it's enslaving. And you've noticed the more you have, the more it consumes you, right? The more it takes from you. The more maintenance you have to do, the more repairs you have to do, the more pressure you feel to upgrade, to get the next best, whatever. So the more you have, the more easily you get enslaved. And we have a lot, relatively speaking. So that's another reason we struggle with contentment. Another reason, I think, is just the world we live in, in this Western culture. We've so long lived with this idea that we need to keep progressing, that we should never be satisfied with what we have. We, sh- we need more. We should get the latest and best and better. And, and so we feel this pressure to not be content from the world around us. And it's certainly reinforced by advertising, isn't it? What is the purpose of advertising? It's to make you and I discontent. To make us feel like, oh, what I have isn't enough. I need this particular product, whatever it might be. I mean, who really decided that you need a newer, fancier car? Advertising. Who really decided that you need when you're 55, to look like you did when you were 25 with no wrinkles? Advertisers. Who decided that you really need to have longer eyelashes? (laughs) Advertisers. Who decided that you should never feel lonely or sad ever? And we've got a pill for you. Who decided that If you don't have very many friends, the real answer to it is to buy the right kind of beer. And boy, then you'll have a lot of friends. Who decided that? Advertisers. And on and on. You see, all of this advertising is designed to create discontentment in you. They're not dumb. They know our tendency to fall into that, and so they just prod that so that we will be discontent with what we have and with our station in life. But Paul says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. This word content, for contentment he uses here, is one that's drawn from Greek philosophy, the Stoics. And the Stoic philosophy saw this word, contentment, Uh, could easily be translated self-sufficiency as the essence of all virtues. William Barclay, in his commentary, quotes this. He says, Epictetus, one of their writers, Stoic philosophers, says, begin with a cup or a household utensil. If it breaks, say, I don't care. Go onto a horse or a pet dog. If anything happens to it, say, I don't care. Go on to yourself, and if you're hurt or injured in any way, say, I don't care. If you go on long enough and you try hard enough, you'll come to a stage where you can watch your nearest and dearest suffer and die. And you can say, I don't care. You see, that was the essence of Stoic philosophy, that if I can just learn to be completely independent of any feeling, any connection to anybody else, That's the essence of maturity. Paul's using the same word, but very, very 
differently. He goes on to describe it this way as we're thinking in verse 12. I know how to get along with humble means, how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled, going hungry. He, he describes it as a secret. He said it's not something that most people know. <laughs> most people don't know how to be content. But I've learned the secret through all the things he's been through, but also through his connection with his heavenly Father. You see, we can learn contentment too. We can learn this secret. He again draws a word out of pagan religion here, and the word secret they use for these secretive religions that if you wanted to get on God's good side, you had to kind of be initiated into this secret organization, and they would tell you how to get on God's good side. It was this pagan, weird thought. Interesting, though, the same thing is happening today. If you just knew this secret, if you could just get in on it, your life could turn out well. There's a book called The Secret that came out a couple of years ago. It's been on the bestseller list for a long time. It's self-described secret. This is a quote from the book. One's positive thoughts are powerful magnets that attract wealth, health, happiness. Oprah loves the book. She writes, The way you think creates your own reality. The secret, according to them, is, boy, if you just think the right thoughts, good things will happen. You need a job? Well, think the right thoughts and it'll happen. Uh, This is just the same old positive thinking, paganism that was like the secret in Paul's time. It's simply a way that if you can just get the secret knowledge, you can control your own life. You can essentially be God. That's all it is. It's just pagan religion, and it's as old as mankind. But Paul says his secret is this, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. More literally, it could be translated this way, I am strong... for everything in the one who empowers me. He says, I'm strong enough to handle anything in my connection with the one who empowers me, in my connection with him. You see, it's not self-sufficiency. It's God's sufficiency. It's our connection to him that allows us to be content. It's knowing that no matter what I face, good, bad, no matter how, what it might be, how overwhelming it might seem, He will give me the strength to handle it. I am strong for everything in the One who strengthens me. Now, this verse has been often misused and misunderstood. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And you see it tattooed on professional basketball players' arms and written all over the place on all kinds of things. People who want to be successful. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. So people think, well, okay, what does that mean? I can do all things. I can leap a tall building in a single bound, stop a locomotive with a single hand. I can win the Olympics. I can, if I just think the right thoughts or whatever. 
Well, that's the way it's used often, but it's misused that way. And this is just good Bible study principles, folks. It says, I can do all things. And we think all things means anything, right? But a word, the meaning of a word is always limited by its context. As you read the context, what is Paul saying all things is? It's all the things in verse 12. I know how to get along with humble means, how to live in prosperity, in any and every circumstance, being filled, going hungry, having abundance, suffering need. In other words, the all things are simply any circumstance. I've learned the secret of being content, he says, because I know that God is with me and in my connection to him, no matter what I face, he will give me the strength to get through it. And therefore, I don't have to worry about what circumstances are coming my way because God is going to be there for me. He's in it with me. So my job is to stay connected to him. And he says, I've learned the secret of living with humble means and living in prosperity. You know, in some ways it's harder to trust God living in prosperity because, again, we get so dependent on things. But Paul has learned the secret of God will even strengthen you to handle having a lot when you're connected closely to him. It's all in our connection to him. That's the secret of contentment. Knowing, Lord, no matter what I face, you're there for me. I'm looking to you. I'm staying connected to you. And you're giving me the strength to get through the tough times, the good times, no matter what I face. I stay close to you. And so Paul wants the Philippians to know very clearly, look, not that I'm in want. I'm so happy that you gave to me. But I want you to understand that I'm content whether you had sent it or not because I'm strengthened in him for whatever I face. But now he goes on in the rest of the passage to make very clear why he is thankful for their gift. How delighted he is in their giving. And he actually gives seven, I just want to highlight seven, I probably could have drawn out more, but seven benefits of a generous heart. If you live a generous life, these are the benefits that you will experience from your generosity. These are the things that Paul is especially thankful for. So he goes back to the gift that they've given to show them the value of their gift. So what are these seven wonderful results of when we choose to live a generous life? First, generosity demonstrates love. Generosity demonstrates love. Verse 10, again, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that at last you've revived your concern for me. You were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Verse 15, you yourselves know, Philippians, that the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. You sense Paul's delight in the fact that they've revived their concern, that they've demonstrated love to him. And when you are generous, especially in a personal way, to somebody that you know, maybe somebody on the missions field, maybe somebody who's hurting, maybe just a friend, and you live a generous life, it demonstrates love to them and it deepens your relationship with them. Jeannie and I, in 29 years of marriage, have lived eight of our years on support through friends that just sent us monthly support. We had no idea what was coming in month to month, but let me tell you, we felt deeply loved and cared for by those people. 
we knew it was sacrificial for them to give and we felt connected to them. We felt their love in a powerful way. Now, I'm on staff at a church. I get a regular salary as part of that, and yet I sense that as well, just being part of this church. I, I feel deeply loved by your generosity as a church to care for my family's needs. You see, it demonstrates love when we are generous. Secondly, it creates a partnership. It creates a partnership when we are generous. You've done well, verse 14, to share with me in my affliction. Verse 15, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. That word for share is the word koinonia. That's the root of both those words. Koinonia, fellowship, a shared life. That's what it means. You see, there's a partnership that goes on that when you choose to support someone, maybe you can't go in the field or you can't do exactly what they do. Maybe you don't have their giftedness, but you are in partnership with them when you choose to be generous and share what you have materially with them. You become partners in the ministry with them. Paul says, you shared with me in my affliction. You shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving. You shared with me in my ministry, my ups and downs, my difficulties, you were there as a partner to support me through it. So when you give generously, when you live with generosity, you become a partner with those that you give to and you free that person up to follow God and do His will. Jeannie and I support several missionaries, field staff, and we feel linked with them. When they come home, we are so excited to have them come home because we are part of their ministries. We share in their ministries. And there's a connection there that there isn't with others. See, it's a wonderful thing. It creates a partnership. Third, a generous life, generosity, profits the giver, benefits the one who gives. Notice verse 17, Paul writes, not that I seek the gift itself, he says again, you know, not that I necessarily needed the gift, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. <laughs> Interesting way to put it, isn't it? I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Essentially what he's saying, he's using economic terms to say when you take money out of your account, guess what? God puts more back in. Not necessarily money. Okay, Some have misunderstood this verse. Hey, if you give to me, God, I guarantee you, God's going to triple it back to you. Well, that's not at all the promise. But what he is saying is that when you choose to live generously, there is incredible benefit to you. It profits the giver. Not monetarily necessarily, but spiritually for sure. There are great spiritual benefits when you live a generous life to your own life. For one, it sets you free from greed, from hoarding, from selfishness, from self-sufficiency. <laughs> it frees you from self-control. It deepens your relationship with God and with those people. It increases your faith in God's care as you choose, I, do I need to keep this for myself? And Okay, Lord, I'm going to give it generously and you begin to see God come through for you in ways you'd never seen before, and it 
deepens your relationship with him. And in many ways, I think it enlarges your soul to be able to receive and give in ways that you never could before. Generosity profits your own heart in a powerful way. Fourth, generosity blesses the receiver. Paul puts it this way, verse 18, I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you sent. He says, wow, I am, I am so filled up. And again, not that I live in one, I've learned contentment, but man, was I blessed. Oh, was it great the way you gave to me. I experience an abundance and I'm sitting in prison. Wow, you really blessed my life through your generosity. Filled him with satisfaction and joy. And when we give generously, it does bless the receiver. Also, number five, it it pleases God. The end of verse 18. What you've sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Paul uses worship terms, sacrificial terms. And he says, you know, when you gave generously to me, God was worshipped. God was pleased. It pleases God when we respond to Him, His care, His taking care of us by being generous with those around us. God is pleased. And He says it's an act of worship. Giving is an act of worship. And folks, that's why we included giving in our worship service. It's part of our worship to give back to Him, to, as an act of worship, together as the body of Christ, to give towards His ministry and what He's doing in this church and in the world. Some have asked, well, pff, listen, I'd give a lot more regularly and, I'd, and you'd get more money if, from me if you would just set up some kind of automatic deduction from my account, automatic withdrawal, or if I could just use a credit card or some other way to give. You know, I'd be more regular. And we don't do that here, purposefully. Because we want your giving to be an act of worship. Lord, you've blessed me. You paid it all. Jesus, you paid it all. And therefore, all I have is yours. And so I'm giving back part of that for your purposes. It's an act of worship. It pleases God. Number six, benefit of generosity. It increases the giver's faith. It increases the giver's faith. Verse 19, My God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You see, it helps you when you give to learn to rest in His care, in His promises, that He will meet all your needs. Not all your wants, but all your needs. This is another verse that's been misused in the Christian world. You need a new car, you need whatever, you need a new house, you need a bigger house, you need more money, you need a better job. You know, God's promised to meet all your needs, so count by faith on that. No. But what Paul is promising, what God promises, is that all your true needs, as defined by God, not by us, he will meet. 
especially to those who live generously. You can trust. And, and you begin to see him come through and meet your needs. And I've certainly found that in my life. You know, there's been times in my life I thought, I don't have enough money to give. And I know there's, you know, God, you're laying on my heart. I should give to this particular person or this need, but I don't know how we're going to make it. And yeah, God gives you money to meet your basic needs. I understand that. But I found in my own life that when I say, no, Lord, I'm going to trust you and give as he's laid on my heart, I find that my needs are met in ways that I would have never guessed. And my faith gets increased. You see, it increases the giver's faith. And Paul has learned that, (laughs) that secret. I want to read uh, from a commentator, Kent Hughes. He puts it this way. He says, looking to the immediate context, this meant, this verse meant for the Philippians that God would meet any material need created by their great generosity to Paul. Furthermore, in regard to the spiritual concerns laid out in this letter, God would supply the need for joy and for steadfastness and for endurance and for humility and for concord and for peace and for the ability to face all circumstances. The stunning scope of this promise is that there is not one thing that they and all faithful Christians truly needed that God would not give. Isn't that a great promise? Isn't that encouragement to trust Him and to live a life of generosity. Finally, verse 20, number 7, what generosity does for us, how it benefits us, it glorifies God. It glorifies God. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is so excited. He said, guess what? Your gift is so awesome. God is glorified. I'm glorifying Him, and He's glorified by that. Why? Especially is God glorified by generosity? Because He is a generous God. We've been singing all morning about His great sacrifice for us, His giving for us, how He gave up His life for us. Our God is incredibly generous. And when we live a generous life, people begin to understand who God is more. The light has shined on who God is. He's a follower of Jesus, and look at how generous he is. Look how generous she is. Isn't that amazing? Isn't God great (laughs) that he can make someone that generous? God gets glorified because he gets revealed for who he is. So these are marvelous benefits to living a generous life. Why, Why would we choose not to? As we learn contentment in him, to rest in his care. Well, Paul ends the book with these last three verses. Let me read them. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. And this, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Paul's in prison. He's converting the people in the very house he's being held. The, the soldiers, the servants, they're coming to Christ. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul's primary concern of this whole book, the book of Philippians, is that they would learn to live in community in a way where the gospel is really central to their lives. 
living for Christ, living for his kingdom, and that will bond them together so they can learn to live in humility, forbearance, loving each other well. But he reminds them in this last little phrase, grace be with your spirit. That grace is the foundation of it all. It's the foundation of our life together. Uh, that's why we're part of his family. It isn't anything we did. It's how foolish of us to think it depends on us. It doesn't. It's all about his grace. And he's called every one of us to be part of his family, the family of God. So he says, hey, now love one another. Live for the kingdom. Let God use you to glorify himself as we follow him. Let's pray. Lord, what a great encouragement towards contentment and generosity. Help us, Lord, to be people that glorify you by the way we handle our finances, our circumstances. Help us to be people of contentment and of generosity that we might experience all these benefits we've talked about, but most of all that you might be seen for who you really are a generous, kind, compassionate, giving God. Thank you for this opportunity to reveal you to a hurting, selfish world. In Jesus' wonderful, forgiving name we pray. Amen.